Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Dr. Kelly Wiener-Smith, who works in bioscience department at Rice University as the co-host of Science, sort of a top-rated science podcast. Her research has been featured in The Atlantic, National Geographic, and BBC World. She is joined by her husband, Zach Wiener-Smith, who is the creator of the popular webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. His work has also been featured in a variety of publications, including Economist, Wall Street Journal, Slate, and Forbes. But today we're here to talk about their brilliant book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That Will Improve or Ruin Everything. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. That was a serious mouthful. So uh, <laughs> thanks for bearing with me on that one. So, before we even talk about the book, which is brilliant and beautifully illustrated, Zach, as well, we won't give full credit to this book by talking about it, but hopefully people will buy it because it's illustrated beautifully and you need a copy. It's one of those ones you like to have on your coffee table. But it'd be great to hear about your story, guys. Oh, uh, so I study parasites that manipulate the behavior of their hosts. I'm a scientist and I just totally love what I do, but I also love an excuse to study something other than parasites from time to time. Uh, and we got this opportunity to write a book together. And so I was pretty excited about that. What's uh, what's your story? What's your, my, I'm a physics degree dropout uh, <laughs> <laughs> who started uh, drawing comics uh, about nerdy topics. And um, so we had kind of had a skills uh, that interfaced well. But but you also have a literature degree. I do have a literature <laughs> degree, yes. And that comes across, I mean, because the comics you draw are intelligent. You can see that they're deep and there's a lot of thought behind them. Well, thank you. And that obviously leads to the book as well. And how did you meet? Was it some science camp or how did you guys meet? We met on OkCupid <laughs> over a shared love of free dating sites, I guess. <laughs> so, uh... what, is, what is that? What is OkCupid? Oh, it's just like a like a algorithmic thing i think they're, they're pretty common now yeah but uh, back then it was mostly nerds i think back then huh? have you seen the episode of black mirror that is about the date the algorithm on the dating app no. no oh guys you gotta check that out you will absolutely love it because it's just got an amazing twist in it anyway we could talk about forever about that stuff let's get into the book because we're under a bit of time pressure you guys have to go and pick up your kid let's talk about the book so you signal 10 emerging technologies and i think this is really interesting because usually on the show we go deep on a topic but you've given a really nice way a graphical way to explain and give people a toe in the water of of 10 different technologies we might touch on those today so let's start with space exploration and this idea of space elevators Sure. So the, the idea behind space elevators is that right now it's really expensive to get stuff into space. So the, the most average estimate that we got was that it's about $10,000 per pound of stuff to get it up into space. So until we can get that price way down, we're not going to get like Space Trek or Star Trek. Sorry. Space Trek. <laughs> My nerd cred just exploded. Yeah, you're gone. You're gone. This is over. I just throw it in the towel. Yeah. Space words. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, we're not going to get big, like, you know, ships that travel through space until we can get those prices way down. And so there's this far off idea called the space elevator, where if we can get it to work, the projections are that you could get stuff into space for about $250 per pound. So way, way down. So the idea is that you have a platform. Uh, most ideas for the space elevator have it out in the middle of the ocean. Then you have a long space cable. Uh, through or up 
that through which a space elevator goes up. And then you've got uh, the long cable attached to something like an asteroid as a counterweight that sort of tracks the movement of the Earth so that the cable doesn't wrap around the Earth. And so, you know, th this idea is pretty neat, but there are a couple different challenges. One of them is how do you beam power to the space elevator to keep it going? And there was, there have been a number of different like competitions for how to do that. And that seems to be a problem that probably is, is tractable enough that we'll be able to solve it. But the problem for the space elevator that seems the most difficult to solve is the problem of the space cable, the, the cable itself. So if you want to make a space or a cable that can actually hold a space elevator, it needs to be incredibly strong, but also incredibly lightweight. And it turns out that's very difficult to do. And so for a long time, the research on space elevators kind of stalled because it wasn't clear what that material would be. Uh, and then carbon nanotubes were discovered in a completely different field. And carbon nanotubes are essentially just a configuration of carbon where, you know, it's in the shape of a tube, not surprisingly. And they're uh, incredibly strong and might actually be strong enough that you could use them to make a space elevator. But anywhere there's a weakness in a carbon nanotube, it be the whole thing becomes much, much less strong. So like tiny little uh, defects in this cable can make it like weak, weak enough that anybody who was on the elevator would have a really bad day. Uh, and so, and, and this cable has a couple other issues. One of which uh, is that if it ever gets struck by lightning, that would be the end of the cable. Uh, <laughs> and, and the solution to this problem is really unsatisfying. The solution, uh, which was told to us by Jason Derliff <laughs> of NIAC, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Group, uh, the, the solution is that there is a place in in an ocean, I think the Pacific Ocean, that, that has never recorded a lightning strike. And so you would put the space <laughs> elevator there nice. and hope that it never records a lightning strike in the future, uh, which is a very unsatisfying solution to me, I think. Yeah. Um, and so one of the interesting things we discovered while researching this book is that a lot of times something that holds a technology back is something that you wouldn't have anticipated. Uh, and one of the things that seems to be holding the cable back is economics, which is to say that... Uh, the research on the cable for a long time, the, the carbon nanotubes kept getting longer and longer. And then at about a foot and a half continuous length, it seems like that met a lot of the terrestrial needs for carbon nanotubes and research sort of slowed. And we stopped getting to the point where we felt like we could get, you know, we would maybe eventually get cables that were 62,000 miles long, which is what you would need to make the space elevator work. And so it looks like economics for the current uses of carbon nanotubes, uh, you know, the, the purposes have pretty much been met. And so those tubes aren't getting longer. And maybe you've heard estimates that carbon nanotubes are a meter or so long, but those aren't one continuous tube. That's a lot of tubes that sort of stick together. And that's still very strong and meets a lot of the purposes for what we need carbon nanotubes for on Earth. But that would not be strong enough to hold up a cable. You need a continuous uh, cable in order to hold up the space elevator. Gotcha. And Zach, is that the picture on, on the cover of the book? Yeah, yeah, potentially. Uh, it would look something like that. <laughs> we, 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 actually, we, we actually have a, a little app you can do. It's like an augmented reality app that will show you a sort of cartoonish space elevator rising out of the cover. When I was reading this, I was kind of going, my kids love playing on the elevator in the supermarket. This would bring it to a whole different level. Dad, we're just going on the elevator. 
Einstein's comedy show, and one, a friend of ours pointed out that the like elevator awkwardness would be really bad because it takes like a week and a half <laughs> to get to the top. <laughs> so you have to like make chit chat for a full like 128 hours or something. Yeah, this was Joel Watson. Yeah. It was hilarious. <laughs> and the music, you know, the music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you'll hear it repeat after an hour. That's the that's what's going to kill yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. In the same chapter, you talk about the idea of asteroid mining, and it'd be great to share that with our audience. Sure. Uh, so the basic idea of asteroid mining is is that you go to the asteroid belt or you capture a rogue asteroid and you can just harvest the um, the metals and uh, other substances in them. And so one thing you should realize at once is that asteroid mining wouldn't look like mining on Earth. Mining on Earth is a matter of digging down. Asteroids are often what are called rubble piles. They're sort of collections of rocks and dust. So it's really more of a harvesting process. Um, the other important thing to realize is that um, pop science reports notwithstanding, uh, probably the utility of asteroid mining is building in space, not bringing stuff back home. And the way to think about that is it, even if you have a paradigm where you have like a space elevator, it's still quite expensive to go out, get stuff, bring it back um, to Earth. Um, it, and it's, it's especially expensive when you compare it to the fact that you can just dig in the ground. Um, asteroids don't have like some special quantity of rare substances. They have stuff that's quite valuable, but it's not like there's one made of diamonds or gold or something. The other problem is, you know, there's a geopolitical concern over um, bringing giant hunks of stuff back to Earth. (laughs) So it's like, for an American audience, I usually say, imagine Russia bringing a giant asteroid back. But let me say, imagine an American company (laughs) bringing (laughs) bringing an asteroid back. How how comfortable are you with that? Because, um, you know, if you drop you know, a 20 ton object towards earth and say it's made of metal and it can survive, um, re-entry. That's pretty close to dropping a nuclear weapon. Uh, in, in fact, we, we say it's worse than a nuclear weapon because a nuclear weapon is a mechanism that you can destroy, right? So if, if there's a nuclear missile inbound in theory, you can hit it with a laser or you can thwack it and break it. If there's just a giant object moving at high speed, it's going to release the same amount of energy as a nuclear weapon, but there's really no way to stop it without, say, using nuclear weapons or something in the atmosphere, which is not, you know, a great option. Uh, so, you know, that's a serious concern. Um, the, the other thing to realize is that asteroids, as I said, are, are made of like the same stuff we have down here. And in fact, they, they're, they're made up uh, frequently of stuff you might want in space that would be very valuable in space, like iron, um, oxygen, water. Uh, and, and a couple other compounds like silicates, so you could make dirt, which is nice for growing plants. Um, and so, you know, the big expense of putting a Star Trek style ship into space is um, just getting the stuff boosted. Uh, that's a major part of the cost. And so, if you can, so to speak, find this junkyard of metals and silicates and stuff already in space and manufacture in space, you know, potentially that's a much better way to make a giant space station or a galaxy traveling spaceship or something like that. I was thinking actually when you were saying that, you know, I, I had this vision of like almost somebody towing an asteroid behind them, right? And then coming in for re-entry and, and there's a customs and it's like anything to declare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I have this thing here. It's nothing to, nothing to worry about. It's fine. Yeah. It's a serious problem. I actually don't know. I feel like there's just not a solution because it's Newtonian. There's not some. There's probably not some magic technology we're going to develop that that makes it safe to do that. You'll have to re- require your governments of the world to get along and behave, which is complicated. In the early days of exploring the planet and discovery of the planet, where you'd have somebody from 
Britain going over and to the Amazon and discovering some new plant or some new metal or, you know, taking rubber plants, for example, and bringing it off, rubber plants off and planting them in Australia and almost bio mining different parts of the world. Back then, it was like open season. You could go anywhere and just claim and go, I claim this plant or I claim this territory or people are fighting over oil, still are in some cases fighting over fish depositories. You know, imagine space was open for grabs. I mean, I, I feel like one big difference is that lots of times when explorer, explorers go somewhere and then say, oh, this is mine, <laughs> what they're saying is, this is mine. And yes, there are people who have lived here for hundreds of years, but I'm going to pretend that's not true. <laughs> Whereas when you go to space, there's no like pre-existing culture that's going to be exploited mm-hmm. uh, as far as we know. True. It's open season, in fact, for Earth people. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. That's, space is fair game. Earth is all taken now, but yeah, space yeah. is fair game. An interesting sort of first way to think about that is like, it, you know, Antarctica is kind of this weird uh, legal zone, uh, but it's kind of okay because nobody wants Antarctica, really. Um, <laughs> but and, and so space is kind of like that. So, you know, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars and, and NASA wants to go to Mars, but it's mostly because it's nifty. Like, you know, there's, there's not like, again, there's no like giant pile of diamonds. We're not, we're very unlikely to discover some sort of useful life form. It's mostly just sort of human tendency to want to explore things. Um, if that changes at some point, if it gets say very cheap to go to space and then somehow that makes it valuable, or if, if someone figures out a way to turn Mars into a very livable environment, um, that will change things and that you can imagine a sort of, um, you know, scramble uh, for colonies like there was 200 years ago, uh, and it, it's actually, I would, I would uh, going back to the kinetic explosive thing, it's really much more ominous because it's as if all the colonies you're scrambling from overlook Earth uh, from a weapons standpoint. Um, because it's it, one thing we discussed in the book is if, if you want to throw something from the moons of Mars to Earth, it actually takes less energy than throwing them from Earth's moon to Earth because, you know, in open space, it takes no energy um, to keep moving. If you say control one of the Martian moons, it, it's a really good weapon launching point if you want to do mean things to Earth. Which, unfortunately, mankind always discovers how to. But I was thinking there, like, you know, Antarctica is like in the box of chocolates, that chocolate that's always left over that nobody wants. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you, you can have that one in that wrapper. Nobody wants that one. Maybe ecologists want Antarctica, as, <laughs> as someone who knows people who work down there. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so- I think a lot of the companies are not, not so interested in Antarctica. You're like, this is Parasite City over there. Like, this is, I could do some serious damage with Antarctica. Uh, there, there's a lot of animals with very interesting adaptations living down there, that's for sure. But uh, So there. So there. <laughs> we'll move on because programmable matter is a, a fascinating one. And I wanted to tell you this. This invention I came up with about 20 years ago, I wrote it down in my, I have an ideas book and I was wrote it down. I called it the Lion King, right? The L-I-N-E. And the idea was that it was a washing line that would adapt to weather conditions. When it started to rain, it would take the clothes in. That kind of idea was the thing. And it was like the Lion King, you know, based on the, <laughs> the story. And, uh, then I was like, read this chapter, and I was like, kind of going, well, this kind of makes my idea really. I'm glad I didn't, I didn't sell everything and invest in that bad boy because uh, programmable matter changes the game. Well, I mean, that sounds like 4D printing. You should contact Skylar Tibbetts and and yeah. tell him about the Lion King. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, 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 the which is an awesome name. The uh, the general idea behind programmable matter is that like the hardware stuff in our lives could be doing more for us. So your computer can do nearly infinite things, but wouldn't it be great if your bike could turn into a chair, could turn into your cell phone, could turn into like a plate when you need it. 
Uh, and the idea, like the, the field of programmable matter is very diverse and it ranges from things like uh, 4D printing, where you essentially print something that reacts to the environment. So it could be a clothesline that when it's wet, curls up and pulls all of the laundry back into your house, which I would love. Uh, Skylar Tibbetts at MIT has created a straw that has printed joints in it, where if you put it in water, it folds up into the letters MIT. Nice. Yeah, right. So that's cute at the moment. But I like the idea is that you could, for example, uh, surround your house in these special 4D printed materials. And, you know, maybe you would have panels that respond to light or humidity and change their configuration in such a way that it helps you control the internal environmental conditions in your home uh, with zero energy expenditure. So maybe you could keep your house cool because when the light was coming a certain way, it would change the, the material would change it, change its shape to keep the sun from coming directly into your house. And that would help you keep your house cool. Uh, and then there's a lot of little steps in between. And then the very far off uh, vision is called the bucket of stuff. <laughs> and this was created by Dr. David Duff. And essentially the idea is that you, you would have lots and lots and lots of tiny little robots that would communicate with one another so that you could say to the bucket, uh, make me a screwdriver. And it would make you a screwdriver that was, you know, firm enough that you could use. And then you could say, you'd put the screwdriver back, it would dissolve back into the bucket. And then you could say, make me a plunger. And it would make you a plunger, which would be an amazing feat because not only would it need to have a hard handle, but it would also need to have a flexible cup. And, you know, achieving those two materials goals with the same robots would be complicated. Uh, or maybe you could even just say, I'm sorry about the problem over there, robot, but like, do what you got to do to fix it. And then like the robot could solve the problem on its own. And so this has uh, a material science problem, which we've already alluded to. But really the problem, the biggest problem is algorithmic. So how do you create algorithms that get all of these different robots to communicate with one another? That's a very difficult issue that, in fact, it's exponentially difficult. So if you imagine that you are in charge of a marching band, the instructions that they need to be able to follow become exponentially more difficult as you go from, you know, tens to hundreds to thousands of individuals in that marching band. And now you're working in three dimensional space instead of two dimensions. Uh, and it gets tough. So there was a project called Kilobots which was 1,024 little robots that looked like watch batteries with three legs that sort of are able to talk to each other and form a two-dimensional outline of a wrench. But even just a two-dimensional outline of a wrench, would, which would be completely unusable, took six hours to make in two-dimensional space. Uh, so we have a long way to go for these algorithms. But, you know, we have, there's some interesting stuff that's been done in the meantime. And even if you don't get the algorithms to eventually make a bucket of stuff, you could get algorithms to make uh, you know, this project called Roombots. You have a couple different robots that interact with one another to create furniture that can move towards you or have different heights depending on you know, whether you're sitting or standing or how tall you are, which could be very useful for people who have uh, physical disabilities or the elderly. Like As we start working on these algorithms, you get those cool projects that require coordination between only a small number of robots uh, so there's cool things along the way, even if you don't achieve the bucket of stuff paradigm. When you read this stuff, and I and I, I totally get the idea of calling it soonish as well, because you know when when you read stuff like Jules Verne, any kind of science fiction, Isaac Asimov, they predict this stuff. They all do, or the imagination does. And even that movie, the the cartoon animated movie, uh, Big Hero, 
that that happens in Big Hero where the you know he has all the the little robots and they join together into big robot and we see this stuff happening the whole time and I do believe once it can happen in the mind it can happen you know it's just a, it's just a matter of time it's going to be soonish it's going to happen when some of this happens Zach you said about Mars becoming a nice launch pad if we use it that way <laughs> but it does raise ethical questions as well the bucket of stuff can be used in different ways that may not be the intended purpose. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of uh, deeper things to think about is, is is not just whether you have a machine that can reshape itself in different formats, it's how much autonomy you are willing to give to such a machine. So, you know, uh, one one version of this we talk about is having robot swarms. Uh, so it's sort of, you can imagine you have, say, 20 robots, little robots um, that, that kind of work together to solve problems. And so a situation you might want that in real life is suppose there's been some sort of... <clears throat> some sort of catastrophe, like a building's falling down and communication is not good uh, and the terrain is unpredictable, you can send in these little machines to, you know, say, look for survivors or try to fix problems. Um, and what's nice about having a swarm is, is a couple things. One, if one breaks, you're still okay. But two, they can work together to accomplish goals while, while being able to move through difficult environments, right? So if, if you imagine like a rubble pile, it might be nice to have lots of little robots to be able to navigate around, but then say they have to clear a ditch, uh, it might be valuable for them to join back up into like one object to be able to cross over, or even in, in some of the more extreme proposals that could even form to sort of a, you know, bipedal shape and walk over and then reform into little uh, creatures. Um, so, but so in an ideal version of this, you don't tell it exactly what to do all the time because it needs to act quickly. And, and it, you know, it, it's just kind of hard for a human to, to imagine operating 20 independent little robots. So what you would like to be able to do is say, look for survivors and solve the problem, you know, and get them out or whatever it is. But yeah, as, 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 as Asimov pointed out in iRobot, it, it can be tricky to sort of tell a robot exactly what to do and be sure what the consequences are. Um, so, you know, one, one of the uh, AI concerns people have is that um, you'll have some all-powerful AI and you'll tell it to do something like optimize human happiness and it'll say, oh, I, well, I just need to kill some people to get some happiness for these people over here. And so it'll start behaving in a way humans don't recognize as just or ethical uh, in order to achieve some goal you've programmed it to have. These are big concerns. And, you know, this is what worries me that our news feeds are filled with absolute crap like Kim Kardashian and, you know, Jersey Shore. And kids are more concerned about how they look because of what that's doing to them, Instagram nation, all this kind of thing. While these amazing technological trends are happening, but they're nowhere on the news feed. These are things that will affect the future of humanity. And the other thing is then in governments. I mean, who in government are you trusting to be dealing with this or asking those ethical questions? You know, I know there's some bodies set up around AI, for example, starting to look at it, the future of humanity and that type of thing. But it's a, it's a concern. One of the things that really concerned me while I was doing these interviews and really surprised me uh, while I was doing the interviews for this book was how little the people who are working on these technologies seem to be thinking about the negative implications so I would ask, as part of every interview, you know, how could the technology that you're working on really mess stuff up for society or make our lives less good? And you know, maybe a lot of people didn't want to tell me that because they didn't want their technology to be portrayed in a negative light. But a lot of them told me they hadn't thought about it in a way that I I believed them when they said it. And and I you know part of the reason that they gave for having not thought about it is. Well, you know, there are people who have degrees in bioethics. There are people whose job it is to figure this stuff out. There are policymakers who should be making decisions about these things, and it's not really my job. 
And to some extent, I agree. As an academic, I understand that we're already wearing lots of hats. uh, And a lot of those hats are things that we weren't necessarily trained for. And none of us are also, well, many of us are not also bioethicists with appropriate training. But it seems like if you are not thinking about it, you should at least be contacting people who can start thinking about it before the technology rolls into our lives. And there will be a lag between when you can make policy to make sure that the technology is used in the best way possible uh, and when it actually makes it into our lives. So I think it's not just the kids on their iPhones who are not thinking about these things. Uh, I think it's also the people who are working on it who are not necessarily thinking these technologies through all the way. Uh, and that that made me a little nervous. I have a further concern, which is whoever's programming the AI is programming it with initial bias. I mean, that bias is going to be baked in from day one. I don't know if it's cultural or if it's just a certain aspect of the process of doing engineering, which is... You know, when you have a problem that's so exciting, uh, and I think we're seeing this kind of fall fall out with Facebook now, when you have something you can do that's super exciting, like get big data on 3 billion people, I think there's a tendency in, in the, the sort of engineering mindset to almost say, like, I'm willing to do anything, like, like screw the privacy, like, this is such an exciting technical problem. When uh, Teller and um, Ulam were working on the fusion bomb, uh, the, the story is when J. Robert Oppenheimer heard about it. He was opposed to it in principle, but he said it was so technically sweet. You could almost, I think that was the phrase he used. It was like, you, you would want to do it just because it's its so interesting that you could make a fusion bomb. And so I, I think there's also just a general aspect of the, the sort of science and engineering mindset that, that, that lends to the creation of things, maybe without thinking too hard about uh, the dangers that may follow. Nice one. So we might jump on to um, construction. You talk about some of the work, for example, of Dr. Stephen Keating, 3D printed houses. It'd be great to touch a little bit on this. Sure. Uh, so we, we have a whole chapter on, on different ways of doing what's called robotic construction. Uh, so there, there's some ways that are maybe a little more obvious, which are like you could replace uh, construction workers with machines that just kind of do all the jobs a construction worker can do. So, so to step back a minute, like a construction worker requires a lot of variable know-how. And in particular, it requires a lot of things that are kind of hard to explain to a computer. So we, we use the example of laying bricks and mortar, which seems like a pretty rote task, like a pretty straightforward thing. But it turns out, if you actually watch what a construction worker is doing, what a bricklayer is doing, you know, they have to do things like assess the viscosity of mortar, which changes over the course of a day and is subject to, you know, climate conditions, humidity uh, and temperature and so forth. And then they have to somehow analyze that and then still slop on the exact right amount and place the brick with just the right amount of pressure. It's actually a pretty delicate job. Um, so, so we're just now getting to where there are machines that can do this, um, but it's pretty tricky. Um, but so the idea is then you, you can imagine a sort of robot arm on, or a couple robot arms on wheels that can perform the various tasks like bricklaying or, or even in some advanced version like, you know, cutting marble to make uh, statues or columns and that sort of thing. There are other paradigms. We, we talked a little earlier about swarm robots. So you can imagine uh, in the same way termites work together, even though no individual termite knows the sort of layout of the termite mound. They somehow work together using some kind of algorithm to build these uh, large structures, some of them quite quite a bit bigger than human beings. Um, and, and another paradigm is um, 3D printing. And so you can imagine this is, is really just like a gigantic version of the 3D printer. A few of the nerdier members of your audience might have at home. Uh, it's a sort of gigantic gantry, just a huge structure. And then it's got a huge extrusion tube uh, that can shoot out a substance that um, is not technically concrete, but kind of behaves like concrete. Um, but it has to have the special qualities that can come out of an extrusion tr- tube and then dry and then be fairly 
stable and, and have structural integrity. And the gantry might also have some kind of gripping device so that it could do things like lay uh, steel into the layers of concrete or uh, plumbing or electricity uh, or, or internet cables, that sort of thing. And the idea is you, you can imagine a gantry just shows up at an empty lot and lays a slab foundation and uh, slowly builds up a house uh, uh, piece by piece, laying in the plumbing and everything. And, and part of what's exciting about that version is that in theory, it could be done in like 24 hours for the cost of parts. Um, you know, whereas a lot of the expense now of a house is, of course, that you have to have a bunch of guys come out to where your house is and assess it and do the building by hand, um, which, is, which is, as we discussed in the book, is somewhat unusual for modern products. Most of the stuff on your desk right now was made... Uh, not by hand, but by a machine doing mass manufacturing, uh, unlike buildings or homes. We might jump straight from here because we talk about the work of J. Craig Venter. So we talk about manipulation of DNA. Yeah. So uh, so one of the, the technologies that we talk about is CRISPR. And so the idea behind CRISPR, uh, in, in to do it shortly, uh, is, is essentially that we have this new technology based on how the bacteria or the immune system and bacteria works that can go in, it can find a stretch of DNA that you've told it to look for, it chunks out the stretch that you told it to find, and then you can replace that chunk with something else. And so essentially you can clip out bits of DNA that you no longer want and put something in there uh, instead. And so you can use it, for example, uh, potentially to fix genetic diseases. So if you have a mutation that causes a disease, you can go in there and remove the gene with the mutation and put the healthy version of the gene in there. Uh, and then, you know, there are concerns that one day you could use this to decide your kid's IQ or their hair color or their eye color. Uh, but, you know, CRISPR is exciting because in the past we've had techniques where you could do gene editing, but it was never this efficient and this effective. And this method just works uh, with, with much lower error and with a lot more species, much better than any of our previous techniques. Um, so that's exciting. But now we also have to grapple with what it means to be able to alter human DNA in particular uh, to alter DNA in situations where those alterations could get passed to your offspring. So for example, if you have someone who you know has Huntington's and they're an adult and you could change their genetics to get rid of Huntington's, you probably wouldn't have a lot of qualms about that. But if you make a change that's going to get passed, for example, in sperm and eggs and then get passed to the offspring, there's some concern there about you know these quote unquote unnatural changes uh, being passed down and essentially becoming part of the human gene pool for the rest of the history of our species. You introduce something new and there's always going to be some consequence that is unforeseen. Yeah, there was an initial study on uh, that was done in China where they were working on some some cells and they used CRISPR, and these were human cells, they used CRISPR, actually, was it, was it a fetus or embryos? Those okay. were, I think these were, were very early stage embryos, but don't quote me on all the details. My memory is not 100% on this. But anyway, whatever they were looking at, what they found was that there, there were a high rate of errors where CRISPR cut in places where they didn't want it to. And even if the error is, you know, 0.01%, when you think about all of the cells in a human body, that could end up being mm -hmm. a lot of errors that could have, you know, big, big impacts on the quality of that person's life if they can survive and, with those errors at all. And a thing to add to that, so like a, a big concern people have is like, are we going to start engineering like where everyone has an IQ of 150 or whatever? And the thing to understand about that is, is something like intelligence is, is very polygenic. It's it's probably many, you, you, you might literally have to make thousands of gene edits to get that effect. So the error rate is, is whatever it is, 0.01%, but you have to cut, you know, a thousand different times. It's going to be a very difficult thing to do in the near term. And I should say that we CRISPR technology has gotten quite good. So the error rates are quite low. 0.01% was mm -hmm. just 
a number that we said. <laughs> the, the error rate could be much lower, but even very low error rates when you have so many cells uh, could still you know, yeah. cause a lot of errors. Yeah, and I, I found this one interesting. You, you, you tell us that malaria kills half a million people a year, but with these technologies, we can now program the DNA of mosquitoes to remove malaria. Yeah, so the idea here is, is that you can essentially make mosquitoes resistant to malaria by editing genes in the mosquitoes and giving them, for example, immune system genes that are really good at helping the mosquito combat malaria so it doesn't get infected and then pass it to people. Uh, and the, the technology here is called gene drive, where essentially into the mosquitoes, you put both a gene that helps the mosquito resist malaria and, and a drive that makes it so that essentially, you know, so for each gene, you have at least two copies of the gene. They can be the same or they can be different. And when you have gene drive, essentially what the drive does is it destroys the version that's different than the gene version that it's associated with. And then, uh, when you destroy that version, what the what the organism does is it replaces it with the other version that isn't broken. So essentially, you end up with an organism that can have two different versions of a gene, but after the drive acts, both of the versions are the same, and both of the versions are the version that the scientist wanted the mosquito to have. And this drive acts in subsequent generations. So if you put a mosquito into the environment that has this drive, all of its offspring are going to have two copies of the gene that were attached to the drive in the original uh, parent. And then it can pass through and essentially you can fix a version of a gene that you gave to the mosquito throughout the population provided, you know, the organism that has the gene drive is able to survive in the environment uh, and acquire mates. That's fascinating. Really, really is fascinating stuff. Zach, you mentioned there the IQ becoming 150 because of this work, but I was thinking to myself, no, no, you don't even have to think of this world for that. We, we've dealt with that over here in the world of brain interfaces. Yeah, so uh, th this is was one of our favorite chapters to write. So it's called Brain-Computer Interfaces, and it is it is what it sounds like. It's just trying to figure out ways to get the brain to talk to a computer and vice versa. And it turns out it's actually quite a tricky problem because uh, obviously you know the brain was not designed uh, with a USB port. In fact, you know, on a deeper level, we don't even know if that's sort of a meaningful question to ask. I think we, in, in modern times, we tend to think of a brain as something like hardware and software, but that might not, it might just not be that simple. Um, but anyway, so uh, we, we, in our chapter, we basically divide this into like levels of invasiveness of brain technology. So the sort of nicest version is EEG. If you've ever had some sort of brain scan done, you're probably familiar with this. It's a sort of shower cap with a bunch of electrodes in it. And you put it on, and it, it, it basically just detects brain signals. Um, the, the limitation is uh, it can only detect like major brain behavior, like 50,000 neurons doing something together. Um, so as an analogy, you can imagine you know, aliens are trying to figure out what a city does, but they can only see events with at least 50,000 people. It's not no information, but it's, you know, it's something big has to be going on. Um, and you know, we go all the way up to their, their technologies that um, called neurotrophic electrodes, where you sort of slip... Um, kind of cone, a little tiny glass cone into uh, someone's head with an electrode in it. And it's neurotrophic, which just means there's sort of food for neurons in the cone. And so the neurons grow inside the cone across the electrode. And now you can detect signals directly from those uh, neurons, which is really exciting. There's a story that we have in the book about a guy who on an illegal basis and installed this into his own brain. Uh, he was actually the inventor of it. But that's a whole separate story. But anyway, to get into sort of the, the, the dystopic aspect of it, um, one of the ideas here is if you can read a brain, um, we can already do this um, with things like, uh, are you in a positive or negative brain state? 
Um, but you might be able to detect things, or you can detect things like lack, lapse in focus. Um, so what's what's was interesting to us is we read a book where a, a guy seriously proposed as a good thing that you could detect employees lapsing in focus, uh, which which sort of I think instantly calls up kind of dystopia dystopian office environments. You know, like your boss is going to be like, I couldn't help but notice you were thinking about your girlfriend for for a second. There. <laughs> um, Data privacy. And um, but but so the, the the good version of it you can you can readily imagine is like if you have someone piloting the jet you're in you might want a machine that detects them lapsing in focus, or if you have a surgeon or something like that. Um, but you can easily imagine the ugly version of it, which is like Bob over here is willing to wear the the brain implant and you're not. So you're, you're, you're not as valuable as an, an employee um, or, or even kind of worse. You can, you can imagine, we can imagine a version where it, it actually enhances like your IQ or something uh, in which case, you know, everybody's got to take it or 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 you'll be out of the job force. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. There's lots, lots more in the book. You talk about AOR, you talk about precision medicine, 3D printing, and all the multitude of elements that can happen around that, both utopian and dystopian. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Where can people find out more about your podcast, the book, etc.? So if you go to soonishbook.com, you can find out where you can buy the book, which is, uh, you know, lots of places. Uh, and you can find out more about what I do at wienersmith.com. And, and I draw comics at smbc-comics.com. Kelly and Zach Wiener Smith, authors of Soonish, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. We had a lot of fun. <laughs>